whatever the reason, Americans are waking up and they're standing up against the warfare state. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Clare. Welcome back, Liberty Lovebirds, to another edition of Lions of Liberty, your home, as always, for great conversations about, what else? The ideas of liberty. This is episode number 255 of this program, which means you can find today's show notes featuring links to everything we discuss over at lionsofliberty.com slash 255. Today, we are sponsored by Health Excellence Select. And guys, with the open enrollment period coming up, many of you have major health care decisions to make. We want to help make it a little bit easier on you. So why not check out a great free market alternative to your standard Obamacare insurance by heading over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today is making his second appearance on this program. He first appeared way back in episode number 40. He is a former aide for an obscure congressman from Texas by the name of Ron Paul. Some of you guys might have heard of him. He is currently a senior fellow at the Ron Paul Institute, where much of his writing can be found. And he recently released a new book collecting much of his writing over the last three years entitled Tipping Point for Liberty, Exposing and Defeating Leviathan Government. I am so pleased to welcome back Mr. Adam Dick. Adam, are you ready to roar? Yes, I'm, and I'm glad to be back, Mark. Well, great to have you back here. And like I said, it's been, I can't even believe, we were talking before the show, I can't even believe it's been two years. It's amazing how time flies uh, in the Liberty world, in the podcasting world. I don't know. I don't know which worlds, but pretty much all the worlds, time just seems to fly by. So it is it, great to have you back on. Great to catch up with you. So why don't we start by doing that? What's been going on the last couple of years with Adam Dick? I know I know one thing that's changed in the last two years for you. Last time I had you on, you were merely a writer at the Ron Paul Institute, but now you've got you've got a fancy new title of senior fellow. So, so what is the... What's up with that? What's senior fellow mean? Do you have uh, greater responsibilities? Do you, do you have to wear a fancier suit to work? <laughs> well, sure. I, uh, the Institute was in its early days when we first talked, and uh, since then, my responsibilities have grown. So uh, I'm writing more than I used to. In uh, a little over half a year ago, I also started an audio show called Five Minutes, Five Issues that uh, does just that. In five minutes, I talk about five issues of the past week. And uh, just in uh, early, in September 10th, we had our first big conference over uh, near Washington, D.C., where we had some uh, great speakers, including, of course, the chairman of the Ron Paul Institute, Dr. Ron Paul, but also Colonel Lawrence Wilkerson, who was uh, Colin Powell's chief of staff in the State Department. We had uh, Jacob Hornberger from the Future of Freedom Foundation, Lou Rockwell from the Mises Institute and LouRockwell.com. Uh, Representative Thomas Massey from Kentucky, who's in the House of Representatives, and a number of other uh, great speakers. So uh, uh, we're we're doing more and uh, and communicating much about liberty with and non-intervention uh, with people at the institute. And if anyone out there is is maybe not familiar with the work of the Ron Paul Institute and all the everything you've done over the last couple of years, what is what is the mission statement of the Ron Paul Institute? What is the purpose of your organization? What are you guys out there really trying to do? The Institute's purpose is to continue what Dr. Paul was doing in the House of Representatives on an educational level of communicating to people uh, the importance of uh, liberty at home and non-intervention overseas. 
And in doing so, the Institute is, is not strictly a libertarian uh, institute, though a number of people affiliated with it are. We also have, uh, for example, on the board, Representative Dennis Kucinich, who was in the House with Dr. Paul and is not libertarian, but, but shares Dr. Paul's interest to a large degree in those two areas uh, that are the focus of our work. When you talk about promoting a foreign policy of non-intervention, um, is there any time that that RPI or you know the people that work there would would see there is a legitimate need to intervene in another country? Because even when Dr. Paul was on this podcast back in episode two hundred, he said, "Yeah, there are times a government should intervene. I mean, if if we're directly attacked, you should go after those people that attack you." So, I mean, do you agree with Dr. Paul's assessment there, or or do you believe that the United States government should just be hands off, no matter the circumstances? No, no, I'd, I'd agree with Dr. Paul on that. I would, as Dr. Paul talks about uh, the non-aggression principle, you know, you don't, you don't uh, aggress against people, you don't initiate violence against them. But if there's an attack on the United States, then uh, that would be the proper time for uh, for action in response to uh, to deal with that threat. the The problem is that uh, that we encounter is is that when the U.S. goes goes off to attack nations or groups that haven't attacked us, we end up creating enemies for America. And uh, it increases actually the danger of people back here in the United States. And of course, there's danger to the people who've been enlisted in the military who are sent off to do the fighting overseas as well. Which is, of course, so interesting because that that statement flies completely counter to the justification for these military interventions. We're told that we need to go drop bombs in Syria. We need to go invade Libya because we got to keep ourselves safe. We got to go fight everybody over there so they don't come here. But what you guys are really saying is that it's really it works the opposite way. We're going over there. We're killing people. And that makes them want to come here and and kill people, uh, you know, kill people that represent the U.S. government, whether it's citizens, whether it's soldiers or what have you. Absolutely. That's the concept of blowback that the United States government and the CIA and has, has long acknowledged exists is that if the U.S. does go over and, and uh, intervene overseas, that there's potential of blowback, meaning that there will be a response uh, against uh, American institutions overseas, whether they're, they're soldiers or embassies or against Americans here, whether in a shopping mall or just in a business, you know, an office building or whatever. Uh, people will find a means to retaliate. Uh, Michael Scheuer, who who's also on the board of the Ron Paul Institute, and he was for a while the head of the bin Laden unit that was in charge of tracking down uh, Osama bin Laden. You know, he he argues this exact point that that this is what bin Laden wanted. He wanted the United States to uh, actively engage more and more overseas. And that that would be what they would respond to. You know, they responded to that 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 engagement of the United States, the stationing of troops in Saudi Arabia, U.S. support for Israel, U.S. intervention in the Middle East. That was a response that that people uh, that that people in his organization were were attacking the United States about. And then they wanted the United States to escalate that so that we'd be in a quagmire and it would hurt the U.S. more than anything else, and it would also build uh, support for. For uh, you know the ultimate caliphate and and other goals that uh, that Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda and and now ISIS have. Let's talk about your book for a bit here. Uh, the title of the book is A Tipping Point for Liberty. So why did you choose that title, Tipping Point? What is the meaning of that term, Tipping Point? And uh, do you believe we are reaching a tipping point of some sort? Well, a tipping point is is when you have enough developed support on your side that you, you suddenly have a change where things turn from being one way to another. 
And I do believe that there's a tipping point for liberty now. One of the uh, one of the things that's pushing us uh, to the tipping point is the increase in education about libertarian ideas to, uh, in the United States. You know, looking back decades ago, there were many less people identified themselves as libertarian who understood libertarian ideas than there are today. And that education will have, you know, is starting to have some results, but it'll have bigger results once we reach a certain threshold. Another area where we see a tipping point is that local and state governments are going their own way against uh, some U.S. government policies. We see this in the drug war. In 1996, California adopted medical marijuana. You know, now we've got legal marijuana in several states for recreational use, medical marijuana in, uh, in many more. We have decriminalization happening in states that haven't adopted either of those. Uh, so that people, even though they can't legally use marijuana, at most they're facing a fine for having small amounts. So the U.S. government in responses has to has to back down. You know, the Justice Department initially sent out some memoranda saying to be more sparing and and enforcing drug laws against people who are complying with state marijuana laws. And now that's become more solidified as the position of the U.S. government, and it's been included in appropriations legislation that says uh, don't don't prosecute people complying with state medical marijuana laws. And recently, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals backed that up and said it's the law. So that's one area, but you see it in other areas as well, such as guns. You know, the U.S. The US government over, you know, since the 1960s, when it started really controlling and putting on gun controls, has has wanted more and more restrictions on guns. But on the state level, we're seeing states like Kansas in the last few years move towards constitutional carry, where you can carry a gun openly or concealed, and you don't have to have a license, you don't have to take a course, you don't have to pay a tax. And, uh, you know, they're doing that, and the U.S. government doesn't have any choice. That's just the law there. So uh, we'll see that in other areas as well. And that's all part of the tipping point where things uh, push back and the uh, growth of government disrespect for civil liberties is is uh, uh ends uh, ends up losing and uh things can start moving very quickly like we're seeing with marijuana the the momentum's built and the end of the war on marijuana is looks like it's uh it's much closer than people would have expected a few years back well, Adam, I'm glad I have you on the show to to give me that spin to things because it can be frustrating as a liberty activist, as someone vocal about the ideas of liberty. A lot of times you feel like you're not making headway, especially, you know, I live out here in California. Pretty much everybody that I know is a progressive. You can feel like you're not getting through to people at all. And maybe in many ways, you're not getting all the way through philosophically. But when you break things down like you just did and you look at incremental changes that we've seen in society over the last 10, 20 years, uh, we've seen the liberalization of drug laws. We've seen the liberalization of gun laws, uh, when you put it in that perspective, it seems like, well, hey, maybe all this work we're doing is actually paying off a little bit. Yeah, it is. And people are doing other things, you know, on the individual level. You have uh, people opting out of of the schools and the increase in homeschooling in America. And you also, on the foreign policy side, uh, when when Obama initially wanted to, uh, to uh, attack uh, Syria a few years ago, he was planning to go to Congress and have them uh, have them vote him the authority. But the people in the United States, they were contacting the members of Congress and telling them, no, absolutely don't do this. We don't want war. And that stopped the war from happening then. Since there's been a lower level and somewhat co- and often covert intervention by the United States in Syria and Iraq, 
but it didn't reach the levels that Obama wanted it to immediately reach a few years ago. So uh, that was a great success where the people were able to actually control the government and prevent it from from entering into a big international conflict. Yeah, I, I recall that very vividly when Obama came out and said, you know, we we Assad has drawn uh, or crossed the red line, I think it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it seemed to me, oh, here we go again, where we just invaded Libya and they're going to do it again. And I, I almost felt resigned. Uh, maybe I'm too much of a pessimist, but I thought, you know, this is going to happen again. They're going to launch another war. They're going to overthrow another government and it's going to be a disaster. And by all accounts, Syria is definitely a disaster in many ways, but at least it is not a, a full scale military bog down like we like we did see in Iraq. It's not a, uh, well, the civil war itself is probably maybe close to the disaster that Libya is, but at least American troops aren't, you know, occupying the country, which is a lot better than it looked like it might be three or four years ago. So there's no doubt that I think the liberty movement is, is a major part of the voices that are, are creating this change in society, even if we're not getting a quote unquote libertarian president anytime soon, or even a libertarian congressman, uh, the voices of liberty that are all out there, uh, they do have an effect on society over the long term. And I really do think that Ron Paul, did a lot to wake people up to sort of an anti-war position, to an anti-Fed position, to a lot of a lot of topics and a lot of positions that simply were not popular or were not were not mainstream whatsoever before his his presidential runs. Absolutely, absolutely, and it's uh, you know you were right to 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 have uh, low expectations because if you looked at, at what Congress would be expected to do with a war on Syria, you know, they don't, they don't uh, stop the presidency from uh, initiating wars overseas. You know, we've had plenty of wars since World War II with no declaration of war and the Congress just sitting back and letting it happen. And uh, that's, that's what we've, that's what we have seen with the intervention in, in Iraq and Syria that has happened since, you know, Speaker House Boehner and his successor, you know, both talk about how Congress should play a role, but Boehner, Boehner never put forward an authorization for war. You know, and he said for a long time, well, Obama has to present one, even though Boehner and the other leadership always were able to draft their own legislation on plenty of issues, you know, put it through committee and put it right on the floor. When Obama finally did present an authorization for war, Boehner sat on it for a couple of months and then said, oh, I'm sending it back. You need to send me one that's more broad, that gives you more power. And then and then we can vote on that. So, uh, you know, they they aren't they aren't fulfilling their responsibility. And they aren't stopping uh, the executive branch from being aggressive in foreign policy. But thankfully, people in America have developed enough an understanding of the dangers of these foreign wars. And, and for some people, it's not a concern about deaths overseas, whether U.S. soldiers or, or individuals in these countries. It's, it's also a concern of, of economics that, that these wars are costly and uh, – and that the U.S. government can't afford it with its huge deficits and debt. But whatever the reason, Americans are waking up and they're standing up against the warfare state in this instance and others. Adam, I, I want to touch on a few topics that you are addressed in your book because you really have a knack, I think, for for finding stories out there that really do uh, demonstrate the ideas of liberty in action, or, or sometimes uh, the opposite, the ideas of tyranny in action. But you you have a knack for finding little stories that that tend to fly under the radar and really highlighting the the liberty angle on them. So uh, a large part of your book is dedicated to the war on drugs, and I think that that like myself, that's an issue you're clearly very passionate about. So why don't we touch on just a couple stories over the last few 
years uh, and break them down a little bit, starting with, with something which I really found interesting. It's it's not something really people think about too much as, as a part of the war on drugs or prohibition, but in many states and many municipalities, there still is a war on alcohol to some extent. So one story you pointed out, which which I kind of blew my mind because I didn't even realize this was still a thing until recently, but uh, the city of Arlington, Texas, recently legalized liquor stores, of all things. <laughs> so can you tell us about that and, and how long were liquor stores banned in Arlington? Uh, how, how, how far back in history of Arlington did, did the banning of liquor stores go and what caused this this change of, uh, I guess, change of a policy there? Well, uh, Arlington uh, is is a is a neighboring city of where I where I live. I live in the Dallas Fort Worth metroplex, and Arlington's here. It's a, a lot of people may not be familiar with it, but it has has over three hundred fifty thousand residents. So it's it's a large city in the middle of a metroplex, including even larger cities. And uh, what the voters did there a few years ago was was vote in a refer uh, in a referendum before them to legalize liquor stores. Uh, what we have here in Texas is that is local control over how much alcohol prohibition continues. You know, no no county or, or town has absolute alcohol prohibition, prohibition where you can't, you know, drink a beer in your own home. But they do have restrictions on the ability to sell beer. So uh, you might have it where, you know, if Arlington has the prohibition on, on liquor being sold, you have to drive outside the city limits and there'll be a row of liquor stores there and buy your liquor there and then bring it back. Uh, there could also be restrictions uh, on restaurants selling the alcohol, so this is a this is a movement that's been taking place over the last uh, last few years here in Texas. There have been a lot of votes, and almost all the votes are going in favor of decreasing the controls over uh, over alcohol sale and sale and consumption in the state. So here we are, you know, 80 years after prohibition ended with the 21st Amendment, and and the uh, the liquor laws are still being liberalized, and and I you know I. When I wrote about that, I, I wanted to describe that in connection with what's happening with marijuana now. You know, not too long ago, marijuana was absolutely illegal for any purpose throughout the United States. And now that's changing. And in November, we'll have more states uh, where people will vote for medical and recreational marijuana as well. But like like the situation with alcohol now, what we'll have with marijuana is not the perfect situation from a libertarian perspective where anybody can use marijuana whenever they want with no restrictions whatsoever, with no taxes. We're going to have uh, what I call a patchwork quilt system where where it's uh, more restricted some places, less restricted others. And, uh, you know, marijuana will be more legal than it, than it was, you know, before 1996 when, when California adopted its medical marijuana program. It'll be more legal than, than it was back then, but uh, everywhere. But there'll still be uh, differing restrictions throughout the country, and there'll still be things that people can do to uh, uh, to improve the laws. You know, for example, in in uh, some people are playing Upton in Colorado, all this great revenues coming in from uh, from marijuana. But there's no reason to especially tax marijuana heavily. They call it a sin tax, but sin isn't something that the the state or local or federal government should be should be punishing that's something that people people should should uh, you know they should look to their religion and their ethic systems to determine what what is sinful and what they shouldn't do not to not have the federal government acting as a nanny trying to enforce that sort of thing so uh, there'll, there'll definitely be room for improvement in the marijuana laws uh, hopefully not over the next 80 years but but over the next few years yeah it really does blow my mind that there are 
really any politicians out there at all that still support the prohibition of marijuana. But but as you also touch upon in your book, uh, they are out there (laughs) and they are still perpetuating all sorts of long debunked myths about marijuana. So maybe you can just touch on a few of the myths that that there are still politicians out there spreading about this relatively harmless plant. Well, one of one of the uh, one of the biggest myths I addressed uh, in the book is is one being a that was put forward in a committee hearing by Representative John Fleming. He's a Republican from Louisiana. And he was saying that there's, you know, no medical use for marijuana, that it's it's all just an excuse for people who want to get high and that nobody has any medical benefit from it whatsoever. But the the obvious fact is is that there are there are tons of doctors who are prescribing uh marijuana to people around the country and there are people using it for that purpose. And they are getting benefit from it now. Fleming Fleming suggests that every person who gets who who even could get a benefit from marijuana, there's some pharmaceutical out there somewhere and some regimen their doctor can can give them that would do the same, create the same benefits for them. Now, supposing that's even true, what do you want these people to do? People who are in terminal condition and may have you know five years to live and are intense pain, they have to go through and try all these different methods when marijuana. Can can readily accomplish the result they're seeking. It's it's a it's a very cruel proposal to put out there that that's that that's the only alternative they should have to keep trying different connections of prescription drugs and and uh, and other therapies when when there is a solution for medical marijuana. And at the same time, he points to uh, admissions of of uh, young people to uh, to rehab as uh, uh, for marijuana as an indication that it's highly addictive and dangerous. But what he fails to mention is that is that even if you could you you say that marijuana is addictive, it's nowhere near the addictiveness of tobacco or alcohol that are legal. And at the same time, many of these uh, times when people are going to rehab, it's either court ordered, or it's uh, for young people, particularly whether they're juveniles or or young adults. It's it's their parents that are that are pushing the rehab and and, uh, the young people have little choice about whether they go or not. They might think it's a joke that they're going to rehab and the idea that it's it's a super addictive uh, drug that they can't overcome, but they'll go ahead anyways because they want to keep having the support of their parents. Adam, I'm going to pick your brain a bit on some current events, including the current election cycle in just a minute. But first, I need to take a little time out to tell my listeners about today's sponsors. You know, I'm a freelancer and I purchased my own health insurance and I was hit by some serious sticker shock after the implementation of Obamacare. My premiums and deductibles were skyrocketing. And as someone who keeps myself pretty healthy, I knew that I was getting a raw deal for a product I simply didn't want. This caused me to seek an alternative and I found an amazing alternative in the form of health sharing. A killer concept where healthy individuals agree to share their medical costs. That's right. It's a voluntary free market system for paying for your health care that also, thanks to an exemption, covers the Obamacare mandate. Our friends at Health Excellence Select have kicked it up a notch by creating a full service package to handle all of your health care needs. Trust me, I'm not just a proponent of health sharing. I'm also a client. This has been one of the greatest things I've ever done to leave the Obamacare system in favor of what our friends at Health Excellence Select are doing. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. And don't hesitate to give my man Jeff Cantor a call at 440 283 Four nine. Be sure to mention Lions of Liberty. 
Adam, let's uh, let's move on to some current events, because uh, obviously we all know we're in the midst of uh, election season. We've got a couple options out there. Well, more than a couple. Uh, we've got Donald Trump. We've got Hillary Clinton. There's a lot of debate uh, whether one is, is worse than the other. Of course, the libertarians have also put up Gary Johnson and his his buddy, his co co running mate, Mr. William Weld, who I know you have been critical of, of that ticket. So why don't we just start there? What are your criticisms of the Johnson Weld ticket and, and what kind of gives you a red flag that these guys don't really necessarily represent the ideals of liberty as you see them? Well, I, I tell you, the, the first red flag I mentioned this was, was, that, uh, was that Weld was chosen as the vice presidential nominee. You know, there's really not an argument that William Weld is is libertarian or even libertarian-ish. And uh, a few days before the convention, there was an interesting article in National Review by, by David French, who was saying, uh, we don't like Trump. You know, I don't like Trump as a Republican nominee. We've got to find somebody to run third party. And French's suggestion was, was that the best person would be Mitt Romney. You know, he was one of the people like, like others on the uh, larger on the neoconservative side who were trying to get pressure Romney in the running. Because that worked out so well last time. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but he said, hey, maybe uh, maybe Gary Johnson would work out. You know, he was any point out Gary Johnson isn't uh, isn't as, as non-interventionist as Dr. Paul and even said, hey, libertarians will be surprised if, uh, you know, in a Johnson presidency by just how much intervention a, a libertarian might do. So when Bill Weld was named, you know, that was a big red flag. And that happened just, you know, Right at the last minute, and you know, Weld had a, had a had a bad history with uh, actually signing a letter going out to members of the of the U.S. Congress, telling them that they needed to reauthorize portions of the Patriot Act. That yeah, it's not like he just sort of you know uh, vaguely supported it. He actually went out of his way to encourage people to reauthorize it. Right, and that's that's a big difference. You know, Absolutely. potentially potentially you could argue that it, uh, just off an off the cuff comment doesn't carry the same weight. So, you know, Weld has a history of a prosecutor. So these, this is a, this is an area where he has, he has knowledge, you know, as, as, as a lawyer who prosecuted cases. At the same time, another thing he did was uh, soon after the Iraq war, he was out touting uh, Bush as having a great foreign policy, uh, George W. Bush, that is. And, and so here he is on, on both the domestic civil liberty side and on, on the foreign policy side, just saying awful things that, that nobody could defend as libertarian. Some things he's done since joining the ticket include recently he was interviewed and said that uh, nobody on a terror watch list should be able to uh, to buy a gun. Well, the terror watch list is not a list of terrorists. It's a list of people that some bureaucrats have decided to put on the list. And the list, you know, it goes to tens of thousands of people long and it gets shortened because you know, sometimes be, there's even been reviews where they reviewed the list and actually took a whole bunch of people off the terror watch list because they never should have been there in the first place. But it's no due process. No, you know, you're not called up and said, "Hey, you're on the ter- we want to put you on the terror watch list." You know, here's your court date. Come show up with your lawyer and debate the issue. They just put you on there and don't even tell you. You know, in one of the more extreme terror watch, watch lists, the uh, no fly list, the way you find out you're on it is you show up at the airport and they don't let you fly. <laughs> okay, and then if you want to get off the no-fly list, you might end up having to act, literally make a federal case about it that'll go on for years and years and cost you tons of money, and and maybe you'll win and be taken off, and a lot of the court case will be taking place in secret. So so here you have 
Bill Weld saying it's fine that just anybody who happens to be on this list because of somebody making a data entry that, that puts them on in the U.S. government that, that they can't have a gun, you know, a, a, a right protected under the Second Amendment. Uh, another thing that uh, that Weld has done is uh, is he he's said that Johnson would appoint to the Supreme Court either somebody along the lines of current Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer or appellate judge Merrick Garland. Now, Merrick Garland is is the person that uh, Barack Obama has put up to uh, to be on the Supreme Court and that the Senate is delaying on currently. And and this would be a little event because, hey, Bill Weld is running for vice president. Who cares who he wants on the Supreme Court? But in the interview where where I don't where think Weld- Bill Weld knows he's running for vice president. So somebody <laughs> might want, you might want to let him know because uh, they they literally use this term co-president all the time, which I've I've never heard of before. I didn't know we had that system in the United States. <laughs> and and that's why you know and that's why it's important to know, like it's not so important as much with with uh, with with Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, who their vice presidential nominee is. Because that person isn't going to be making policy for the most part. If a vice president is, is involved in policy, it's often in an, in an area where he agrees totally with the president and the president appoints him basically into that position to work on this issue. You, you be my person to work on reforming education. It's, it's not this co-president idea that you have with uh, Johnson and Weld. I mean, a good example is, is uh, I think it was on 60 Minutes when when uh, just after Trump announced that Pence was going to be his vice presidential nominee, the the interviewer was was talking to Trump about, well, what about Pence? He voted for the Iraq War, and you're against it. And Trump just said, yeah, he made he made a mistake. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to defend him. You know, I'm the I'm the person who's right, and we disagree on this issue, and it doesn't matter because he's just the vice president. You know, that's right. the message there. But you don't get that here. Actually, before Weld talked about who should be appointed to the Supreme Court. Johnson, in that interview where they're both sitting there, said, that's really an issue that Weld understands best, and I'm going to have him answer this question. He's basically deferred to Weld on this on this critical issue of who's going to be on the Supreme Court. It's amazing how many times uh, when they had their, their town hall, and a couple of them on, on CNN, one was Stossel, but I can't even count on two hands the number of times Gary said, uh, I'm actually, Bill's got some thoughts about this. I'm going to toss this one to Bill. I mean, it's like probably five or six times per appearance he does that. So that that, that tells me that it's, it really seems like Bill Weld is is leading this ticket and, and leading Gary more than Gary saying, come join my ticket. That That's just the feeling I get. I don't I don't know if, if the reality is that Weld was pushed upon Gary or, or what. I have no idea what went on behind the scenes. Gary claims that, uh, <laughs> that I can't say this with a straight face, that Bill Weld was the original libertarian and then inspired him to, uh, you know, in his run for the governorship. So uh, maybe that says more about Gary Johnson than anything else, though. Right, right. So that's, you know, yeah, that's the situation with them. It's not, it's not a, it's not your normal libertarian ticket. It's not even the the, uh, the libertarian ticket of uh, that Johnson had, you know, four years ago. It's it's very different. You know, it's not. You'd have to go back a. With uh, Representative Bob Barr, who had a lot of problems too, to see something along these lines. One more thing I want to ask you, Adam, uh, when it comes to this election here, I mean, uh, the reality is that we all kind of have to accept is that even if Johnson does get a number of votes, even if Jill Stein gets a number of votes, 
one of these two people, Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton, is going to be president. Is there any distinction whatsoever to you between the two? Is there one that you think is definitely going to be worse? Obviously, Trump is a bit of a wild card because he doesn't have a 30-year record in government like Hillary Clinton does. But is there one, especially especially through the prism of, of the Ron Paul Institute's mission of a, a less interventionist foreign policy, do you think that there is one candidate that maybe has some hope for being slightly better than the other? Oh, you sure. First, I wanted to just say it. The, the reason why Gary, Gary Johnson and Bill Weld are, are so relevant to me and that I, I, you know, I do think about their campaign is the fact that their, their ticket is called the Libertarian Party ticket. So right. If there were a couple I, of independent I, candidates, we might look at them completely differently. Absolutely. But, but I think what they're, you know, I was talking about the growth in education about libertarianism and so forth. And then when you have somebody saying something like everybody on the no gun, you know, no fly list and other terror watch list can't have a gun. People think, well, that's the libertarian view. So there's a lot of uh, miseducation going on just by their connection with the the label libertarian. And you're right. If they were just running as an independent campaign, uh, it, it wouldn't matter too much. Okay, so there's a couple guys who, who are off the mark on libertarian issues running as a third party, just like you know Trump and Hillary Clinton are far off the mark from libertarian issues. Now, between Trump and, and Hillary Clinton, well, neither one, neither one's an advocate for civil liberties at home or non-intervention overseas. The difference, the biggest difference I can see is that Hillary Clinton has a long track record, and she has a long track record of being against those things. You know, in the U.S. Senate, she wasn't an advocate for ending the drug war or stopping police militarization, or uh, or or any of or or. Or any of the things that that libertarians look to as as uh, protections of civil liberties. Now, then she was appointed after the after losing to Barack Obama in the presidential race to to be Secretary of State, and there she was an advocate for war. You know, she was an advocate for war against Libya. She was an advocate of of war in Iraq and Syria. She she wasn't an advocate for peace. And if she had been an advocate for peace, well, there'd be something to look at. Okay, you know, she was in an administration where, where, where all these wars happened, but she fought against it. She didn't fight against it. She helped make sure it happened. So, so Hillary Clinton has a track record, and the track record's bad. Now, Donald Trump, he's he, uh, you know, he says some things that suggest that he might be a little better on some of the intervention than Hillary Clinton. You know, one of the things that people cling to is is that he opposes the Iraq war. You know, well, that was in 2003. It's, it's easy, you know, it's easy for people to oppose a war to happen 13 years ago and has turned in this, cre- obviously created a disaster. But what will he do when there's people provoking him to start the next war? That's the question. And his lack of a track record and his lack of a principled declaration of non-interventionist views make it very unclear what he would do in that circumstance. On civil liberties, Donald Trump, you know, and now he's, he's wanting stop and frisk nationwide. He, you know, he's, he's not an advocate of ending police militarization. In fact, he wants to, to uh, lift the, the, the uh, restraints that, that uh, President Obama, Obama recently placed on the supplying of military-style weapons to, uh, to U.S. police. You know, he uh, way back, you know, I guess a decade or two ago, he said some things critical of the drug war. But he's 
he's not very distinguishable from Hillary Clinton on that issue as well. So, uh, you know, neither of them's a libertarian option. Neither of them lines up with respect for civil liberties or non-intervention. You know, Hillary Clinton, you know what you're going to get. Donald Trump, it's a bit of a gamble. But I think you're fooling yourself if you think that with Donald Trump, there's going to be he's going to be a, a big advocate for a move towards respecting civil liberties and and not intervening over, overseas. There's there's no indication of that. But at least, you know, at least on foreign intervention, there's some there's some iffiness that that he's he's not he's not, you know, an espoused advocate across the board of intervention. There, like there's Hillary maybe a one percent chance that Donald Trump might not be completely terrible on that on that issue i guess <laughs> right right that's uh as opposed but, to a zero you know, percent chance with hillary right right but, but without a track record it's it's uh you'd really you know to really feel comfortable that somebody was good you'd you'd want them to be at least saying you know principled broad statements of 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 support for non-intervention and and you absolutely aren't hearing that from them well, I know where you are hearing that, and that is from yourself and the fine folks over at the Ron Paul Institute. So I do encourage everyone to go check out their work over there, check out your work over there as well. Adam, before I let you go, why don't you just give everybody the full roundup of where they can find your work, of course, over at the Ron Paul Institute, uh, but everywhere else, and let them know how they can contact you, whether it's social media or, or what have you. Sure. It's at the Ron Paul. It's ronpaulinstitute.org. That's the website. And uh, everything I write on my, my weekly audio show they're there. You can also uh, find all of those at adamdick.com. And at adamdick.com, is, you can find an easy way to follow me on Twitter and uh, Facebook as well. Adam Dick, it's been a pleasure catching up with you. Let's try to do it again in less than two years' time. And uh, keep up the great work, man. Great. Thank you. Take care, Adam. You too. All right, folks. And I hope you enjoyed my conversation today with the great Adam Dick of the Ron Paul Institute. And like I mentioned during the interview, it's great talking to someone like Adam who has such a positive take on things, even when we're talking about terrible things such as overseas aggressive wars, such as the war on drugs. There are bright spots to be found, and Adam is the kind of guy that can go out there and find some little stories that can show us, look, we are making some progress in certain areas. And and frankly, the war on drugs is, is maybe my most important issue, and that is one place we are really seeing some major progress. Obviously, we're seeing the legalization of marijuana uh, across the country in various ways, and that is only one substance, only one small step in beginning to decriminalize the ownership of substance overall, I think we have a very long way to go philosophically by, by really changing the beliefs of the population, but there is at least some significant progress on this one area, and it's thanks to people like Adam Dick, thanks to people like Ron Paul, thanks to all the voices of liberty that are out there talking about these issues. That's what really does over time create the cultural change that we need to see improvement in these areas. So, hey, you can do your part by talking about these issues yourselves or maybe at least sending your friends, your family over to podcasts like this one where we keep advancing these ideas. Please, I encourage you to share all our material. Go to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. Reshare our stuff from there. Go to us on Twitter at Lions of Liberty. Retweet all our stuff. And maybe you too, can help ignite the ideas of liberty in some other minds out there. You can also continue this conversation with myself and my fellow Lions of Liberty associates by joining our private Facebook group, 
called the Lions of Liberty Forum. You can find that just by typing Lions of Liberty Forum in your search bar on Facebook, or we will, of course, also link to that in today's show notes at lionsofliberty.com slash 255. And while you're on the internet racing around telling your friends about liberty, could you take two seconds out of your day to leave us a five-star rating and a great review on iTunes, on Stitcher Radio, however you listen to this podcast. Those reviews do wonders to boost us with those crazy algorithms out there that these platforms tend to use to determine what sort of shows to promote, what shows to put in front of people, and doing that really does help up our profile. So we really do appreciate those of you out there who have left us a five-star rating, left us a great review. We encourage you to keep doing so because that's how we're going to expand the show. That's how we're going to advance the ideas of liberty. And that's how we're going to continue to see positive change, like the kind of change that Adam Dick was pointing out today. So I highly recommend you following Adam Dick, following his writing. One of my favorite writers to read on a regular basis, and he's always on top of the current issues, just as we try to stay on top of them here at Lions of Liberty. And we're going to keep doing that next Monday when we look at the latest presidential debate, the third showdown between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. It takes place tonight, if you're listening to this podcast, in chronological order, which not everybody does. But tonight, on Wednesday evening, the 19th, which may be in the past, depending on when you listen to this, the third Republican debate, we're going to break this whole thing down with a great Lions of Liberty crew. And before then, don't forget, every single Friday, including this one, we've got another edition of John Odermatt's Felony Friday his weekly look at the broken criminal justice system. So we've got a plethora of Liberty content coming your way in the next week. Don't miss a thing. Until then, guys, live long and live free.